Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Familiar nursery rhyme, you may have read it to your children, perhaps your parents read it to you, but what does it mean? You look in the children's books and Humpty is typically this big egg-shaped being with stubby arms and legs, and, and, uh, but I kind of wonder, how did Humpty get up on that wall in the first place? I mean, his body is so, is so large, I mean, you know, he's, he's like the, the Weight Watchers poster child or something, and, 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 but the, the line in that that really troubles me is, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. How are the horses going to help here exactly? <laughs> You ever seen a horse assemble something? You know, and it really makes the point that when we take apart, when we analyze the writings of man, they, they don't make sense. But when we analyze or take apart the word of God, the meaning becomes clear. It makes more sense than ever. And that's what we'll be doing this morning with Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus presents to us a model prayer. We're going to take that apart. We're going to analyze it, unpack it, figure out what exactly is this supposed to mean to us The story is told of a man dying and going to heaven, and Jesus welcomes him to heaven, then takes him to this large warehouse building and opens the door, invites the man to go in and look around. And the man says, wow, look at all these treasures, look at all these treasures. This place is just jammed with treasures and blessings. Jesus says, yes, these were the things I wanted to give you in your life, but you never asked. And as children of God, as the church of God, we want to be dedicated to sucking all those blessings out of heaven. We get there, we want that warehouse to be empty, swept clean, amen? Matthew chapter 6, this is a teaching Jesus addresses to disciples. A disciple, of course, is someone who not just embraces the teaching, they embrace the teacher. They want to be exactly like the teacher. They follow the teacher around and say, I want to live like you and dress like you and talk like you and think like you. So as disciples of Jesus Christ, we cling to him and we say, I want to be like you. I want to be exactly like you. I want to smell like you. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, Jesus speaking, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, we ask you to bless this study of your word. We believe that every word in this book, in your Bible, is inspired by your Holy Spirit. It says exactly what you want it to say. If you wanted it to say something else, it would say something else. And we ask you by your Spirit to open the meaning of this to us. You, you, you say that your word is food for us. It feeds our spirit. And so, Lord, would you feed us from your word today? Change us. Open our eyes to the truths here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus first addresses the motive with which we pray. He says, don't be like the hypocrite. The Greek word there speaks of an actor or a pretender or a poser. Somebody's pretending to be something they're not. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrite. In other words, don't pray in such a way that you're really trying to have other people hear you and think that you're so stinking spiritual, right? I mean, that's really what he's getting at here. Nothing wrong with praying in public. Just remember who the audience is. It's, it's God. It's not other people. Jesus then addresses vain repetitions. In the original language, it speaks of a meaningless babbling, a meaningless babbling. Jesus is not prohibiting praying about something again and again. As we'll see a, a bit later, he recommends that. But Jesus does prohibit these meaningless prayers. Now, when I was a kid growing up in the Catholic Church, I could recite the Our Father without thinking. And that's really the point. For there to be real communication, my heart and mind must be engaged. I mean, imagine uh, somebody talking while somebody else is watching the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, some of you ladies could probably get, get this picture. Uh, there's not real communication because the heart and mind is not engaged. We may need the marriage seminar after this is over. I don't know, but... But what what our father wants to hear from his child are real words expressing the real heart. Next, Jesus says that the father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. If that's true, then why do I need to ask him? Here's the answer. Here's why. Ezekiel uh, 22, verse 29, the Lord says, The people of the land of Israel, the Israelites, have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy. They wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap and stand before me on behalf of the land. In other words, somebody to pray, to intercede, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. God is saying if he could have found one person to pray for these people, he would not have brought judgment, but there was nobody. Nobody was praying for them. And and this is why we pray, because to a large extent, God has chosen to be limited in his actions by what we pray for. And, And if that's true, which it is, then that means that people are either healed or not healed, blessed or not blessed, saved from hell or not saved from hell, based upon our prayers or the absence of our prayers. And once we understand that, what can be more important than prayer? Jesus says, 
In this manner, therefore, pray. He's about to give us a model for prayer, a skeleton, a a template, an example. He's not saying pray this exact prayer ten times a day. He's saying, here, I'm going to give you the example, the model for prayer. He begins, he says, our Father in heaven. And the point is that I am to begin my prayer remembering, reminding myself who God is, who he is, reminding myself who he is. He's my Father and he's in heaven. Recall when the prodigal came back to his father. Uh, He just asked dad for a job. Just make me like one of your slaves. But instead... Dad puts the royal robe on his shoulders and uh, throws a feast in his honor, gives him the signet ring, which gave him authority to spend all of God's money, all of the the father's money. Wouldn't that be cool? No. (laughs) But anyway, uh, so he gives the son the signet ring. And uh, and imagine this. I mean, the, the kid's gone off. He's wasted half of dad's estate. Everything he's worked for his whole life, half of that is gone. The kid went to Vegas or wherever and just blew it. And comes back, and the first thing that dad does is go, here's a checkbook. Here's the other half. And the point is that our father is an abundant giver. He, he does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. But he's not just our father. He's our father in heaven, in heaven. The scripture says, God sat enthroned at the flood. God sat enthroned at the flood. Imagine the panic on earth in the time of Noah. It never rained before. Suddenly it's raining, raining, raining. Floodwaters are rising, rising. People are perishing. Everything that everyone had ever known was getting washed away. Everything they owned, everything was getting washed away. But up in heaven, God was still on the throne. There was utter chaos on earth, but absolute peace up in heaven. Now, I'm positive that our Lord was grieving for the hundred million or so believed to have been on the earth at that time. I'm, I'm sure he was grieving for them. But in the midst of all this chaos and uh, this unparalleled disaster on earth, everything in heaven is still under control. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Meaning that when you pray, God already has the answer. And whatever that is that concerns you today, and there could be many concerns here. I know uh, uh, our our worship leader was talking about fears. You know, there, there are a lot of those. And, uh, and I, I couldn't begin to know what might be going on in your life. But whatever that is that concerns you today, it's already settled in heaven. God already knows the outcome. It's already resolved. It's finished. So we hurry and worry and scurry, but when we come into the presence of God, we want to stop. Remember who He is. It's our loving Father. But not only that, He's in absolute control of the universe. Nothing throws Him for a loop. In the midst of our distress, we can lay hold of the peace of this loving Father who sits on the throne of heaven. So the first step in prayer, I remind myself of who he is. Second, I remind myself of who he isn't, who he isn't. Hallowed or holy is your name. That word holy, the primary meaning is different, different. Our Father in heaven is of an entirely different character, mind and heart than we are. Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I remind myself of who God is, and He isn't me. He isn't like me. And because He isn't like me, His resources and His heart 
to deal with my problem are so much greater than just beyond my imagination. Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, tells the story of something that happened to his mother while he, uh, well, she was pregnant with Chuck. Uh, one day, Chuck's sister, who was two years old at the time, stopped breathing. And no car was available, so mom just picks up the body of this you know, two-year-old, this lifeless body, and runs, not to a hospital, but to a church. And she lays the lifeless body of her, of her daughter there on the floor of the church and asks the pastors to pray. And she's just sobbing and staring at her daughter, understandably so. And one of the pastors says to her, get your eyes off your daughter and onto the Lord. And when she did, her daughter began to breathe again. She literally came back to life. The challenge for us as we enter the presence of the king is to understand that because he is entirely different, his capabilities are so far above mine. And hence, we want to take our eyes off our problem and and put them on him, fix our eyes upon him. Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. As we look down, we will be perplexed by our problem. As we look up, we'll be strengthened by our Savior. So in the first part of this model prayer, we look up, up to a loving Father, firmly in control of the universe. Mars hasn't crashed into Earth lately. You know, he's got it all under control. And I acknowledge he's holy. His thoughts and his ways are so much higher than mine. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here I remind myself of his mission and his method for accomplishing his mission. Your mission as a Christian is that his kingdom come. That's simple. That his kingdom be established in the hearts of all people. His method in that is that you and I would lay down our will so that we can take up his will. And and his kingdom will be established in the hearts of others when his will is done in our life. I mean, look at what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. His will was entirely, 100%, completely surrendered to the will of the Father. And we saw these amazing miracles. We saw these just incredible things. But that was a life that was completely surrendered. And and we see some of the saints over the years, John the Baptist or some of of these, these people over the years, and we see what God is able to accomplish through them and, and they have wills that are largely surrendered to God. Did you ever see kids talking and, and one of them says something rude to the other? I'm sure this happens nightly, the catchments, you know, maybe every hour, I don't know. But, um, you know, kids are talking and one of them says something rude to the other one, like, you know, you're ugly or something. And, and the other one, they'll, they'll put their hands over there and they'll go, la, 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 I can't hear you, la, 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 la. Maybe, maybe some of you still doing that, I, I don't know, but... But, but as kids, we did that. But as we go into the presence of God, this is what we do in prayer. La, 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 I can't hear you. In other words, our will is screaming so loudly that we can't hear the still, small voice of his will. And this is the struggle in prayer, is that our will must be crucified in order that his will would reign in us. That's the whole point of what's going on in prayer. If you get this, this is the centerpiece of prayer. We'll talk a little more, but this is the real issue here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this. Now, this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, whose will? 
His will, His will, His will. His, that's what it's all about. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of Him. And, and, and here's how this works. If I desire His will, He will show me His will. And I think Brian even quoted this verse, stealing from my sermon again. I hate that. But, uh, but uh, Jeremiah 33, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. It's his will. He wants to reveal his will, but we have to want his will or it would be pointless. And to whom much is given, much is required. He's not going to give you that extra revelation if you're just going to stomp on it or ignore it. So you've got to really want it. If you really want to know his will, he will really reveal his will. Here's an example of that. Consider Hannah. We meet Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, Hannah was childless, and in that time, it was, it was, it was a shame to be childless because people assumed in that time, if you were childless, it was because of some horrible sin in the woman's life. God was punishing her and and not giving her children. And so to be childless in that time brought shame on this woman. And so Hannah endured this shame for so many years, and she prayed for so many years for a child. And I love what Hannah's husband says to try to console her. He says, am I not better to you than ten sons? I love that. I've used that. It's brilliant. But, but back to Hannah. You know, uh, poor Hannah, she's enduring all this shame and name-calling because she lacked a child. But then something happened. Something big happened. Hannah began to lay down her will so that she could... See, I'm just going to let her preach it. She, she, she's already ahead of me. Go ahead. Take this. I mean, you, this, she knows what's going on. The Spirit's already told her something. I don't know. But anyway... Sorry, I, I lost my... Okay, so anyway, um, where were we? Okay, so as Hannah prayed, something began to happen. She began to lay down her will, and she began to understand God's will so that she could pray God's will and God would do it. And here's, here's how we know that, is that Hannah's prayer suddenly changed. Instead of praying, Lord, give me a child, her prayer changed. It changed to, Lord, give me a son so I can give him back to you for the priesthood. Bingo! Bingo, this is what God had been waiting for. This was the prayer that God was prepared to answer. Why? Because the priesthood was a mess. It was corrupt, and God wanted to clean it up. And so he needed a man. He didn't have anybody. So he allowed Hannah to go childless so she would cry out to God and and get her to that place in prayer where she just goes, God, whatever you want. And then he reveals his will, and she asks for the son, and then God gives her not only the son, but five more children after that. So from Hannah's life, we see that God allows distress, even brings distress. He allows really difficult circumstances that will crush our will in order that we would be attentive to hearing His will. That's the very essence of prayer, laying down every single shred of our own will so that we can hear His will, pray His will so that He can do it. There are things God wants to get done in each of our lives today. And what is preventing that is not God. He's able, he's loving, he wants to do that. What's preventing it is our will. And so we have to get to that place in prayer where we will lay down our will, receive his will, pray it so he can do it. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, in this section of prayer, we're asking for our needs, for physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, limos, whatever whatever it is. This is, the, this is the part of prayer uh, where, we go, where we go to our needs. And, and bread here symbolizes physical needs. Now, in the model prayer, Jesus has us asking for daily bread. 
But wouldn't we rather ask for bread for a lifetime? You know, just give me lots of bread. Give me 10 million bucks. I'll never have to ask anything again. So my wife says, you know, I'll never, after this thing, I'll never. <laughs> Bring on the marriage course. We need that. Okay. Remember the woman at the well. She, you know, Jesus talks to her about living water. And she says, give me this living water. I want to come here every day with this heavy bucket thing and but that's not a prayer God's going to answer. Why? Because if God meets all of your needs or all of my needs, it's going to cause us to live independent from him. That's the opposite of what he wants. He wants us to be more and more and more dependent on him, not less and less. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This deals with our emotional and spiritual needs. You know, forgiveness is so vital to our emotional health and the health of our relationships. And in the same way, forgiveness from God for our transgressions is so vital to our spiritual health. Jesus said, when you come to God's altar and you remember you got some beef with somebody, don't even try to pray. Go take care of that. Deal with that. That's the priority. Then come back. You know, God has had me call people that I haven't talked to in five years to ask them for forgiveness for something I said. And he showed me that, you know, if you don't do this, I'm not answering your prayers. I'm not telling you a thing. I mean, it's just so vital, you know. You know, whatever happened to confession? And I don't mean going into that stinky little room with the priest, you know. And I'm still trying to get over that. You did what? You know, I you know, can't handle that. But whatever happened to confession? You know, confessing our sins to God and asking forgiveness of other people and extending forgiveness quickly when when they when they wrong us. I can see people in this room I've wronged and I've asked their forgiveness. They're never gracious, you know. Uh, toward me. But in the, later in this passage, Jesus says that this forgiveness is put on hold, your forgiveness. You don't have forgiveness until you get around to forgiving that other person. Now, doesn't that make forgiveness a priority? You know how many marriages would be saved if, if, if people simply said, will you forgive me? And I'm going to do something kind of weird right now, but if you're married and your spouse is here, if your spouse isn't here, I want to know. why. No, but if your spouse is here, if you just turn to them right now, and I want you to say to them, will you forgive me? Just go ahead and do that right now. Anybody who's... Yeah. What do you mean, no? You know. But forgiveness is powerful. You know, when you see couples forgive, you know, marriages come back from the dead. You know, heaven opens, blessings. I mean, just incredible things happen. How about your kids? Sometimes you blow it with your kids, don't you? You know, I mean, granted, they did something wrong, but then you go nuclear and just take it way beyond, you know, wherever it should. Do you ask forgiveness of your kids? You should. Because the Bible says we're supposed to train them up in the way they should go. And, and how will they ever learn to humble themselves and ask forgiveness of others if you don't, if I don't humble ourselves in front of them and ask them forgiveness? You know, if you're not habitually asking for and extending forgiveness to the people in your lives, and I hope that you can receive this in the right way, I would suggest your relationship with Jesus is, it's, I don't want to say it's nearly dead, but it's, it's on life support. It's in a critical place. If you're not giving forgiveness to people and you're not uh, asking forgiveness of, of people and if you're not regularly confessing to God, there's a big problem there. And it's a simple problem to solve. We humble ourselves and repent. We 
ask forgiveness of God. And then anybody he shows us, right now he might be showing you somebody you need to ask forgiveness of. We need to be quick about getting hold of that person, whether it's years ago or, you know, whatever. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Not talking about your mother-in-law, by the way, but uh, (laughs) we'll offend everybody before we're done. Um, James says, James says that God does not tempt anyone, but it's our own desires that, that, that entice us. And uh, if that's the case, why do I have to ask God, or why should I ask God not to lead me into temptation? Well, this deals with another of our spiritual needs, and, and here's how it works. I have a natural tendency towards sin. That's my default mode. I'm going, my flesh is going to lead me into temptation every time. So really, I'm asking God to intervene. I'm saying, Lord, my flesh has taken me there. Would you lead me not? Would you take me out, uh, out keep away of that, and, and, and deliver me from that plan of the evil one? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here we remind ourselves that we exist solely to further the kingdom of God and to bring him glory. That's the only reason we're here. It's not to, you know, accumulate that big MasterCard bill or any. You know, it's not about that. It's about his glory and his kingdom. That's why we're here. So what hinders our prayers? I, I picked three things from the scriptures. There's a bunch more, and, you know, feel free to do your own study. It might be a good thing, but... These are the ones I picked. Number one hindrance uh, to prayer, disregarding the word of God. Proverbs 28, verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. Bottom line, or trans, you know, we could translate that loosely. Disregard God's word, he disregards your prayer. Jesus said something similar, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. As a kid, you ever blow up a balloon and instead of tying it off, you, you let it go and it just goes randomly all over the room making a rude noise that annoyed your mother? I mean, do you, remember, do you remember that as a kid doing that? Well, the prayer of a person who has little regard for God's word, it's like that balloon. You see, effective prayer is all about, as we said a minute ago, it's all about discovering and conforming to God's will. And God's will, of course, is expressed in his word. So the more we read his word, the more that his, his, his will is already there in us. And so as we pray a prayer, it's going to naturally be more and more conformed to his will. And, and a prayer that's guided by his word, well, it's a guided missile. It's going to hit the target every time. But a prayer prayed by that person who has little or no regard for God's word, doesn't love God's word, that prayer is an abomination to God, it says in Proverbs, because it has nothing to do with his will. So it's like that balloon. It, it's not going to hit the target. Number two, hindrance to prayer. We don't ask. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, here's the problem. There's some things we might think, well, this just isn't important enough to bother God about this. I mean, some people pray for parking spaces or whatever, you know. But whatever. But but here's an example. Let's say you think, you know, there's certain things I just can't ask God for. Let's say you think that, okay? Imagine this scenario. Your little two-year-old gets a splinter in their finger. I and mean, this probably happens at the cashman's house daily as well, you know. If you want any examples on parenting, you know, but, or, or parenting difficulty. Um, but anyway, so, so let's say your two-year-old gets a little splinter in their finger. Now, you know as a parent that's not the biggest deal in the world, but to them, to your two-year-old, oh, that's a big thing. So as a loving parent, if they care about it, if it's the, the, the rock in their world, oh, you're going you're gonna to care about that, you're going to take care of it. 
because you're a loving parent. How much more so our Father in heaven? Whatever it is that's bothering you, big or small, he cares about it. He wants to hear about it. He wants to deal with it. Number three hindrance to prayer, our hearts are wrong before him. Our hearts are wrong before him. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Isaiah put, put it this way, your sin has separated you from your God. Sin, obviously, a huge roadblock in our communication with God. Uh, it's got to be dealt with. It's as simple as humbling ourselves, repenting, uh, you know, just deciding, yeah, I've been going this way, I'm going to turn around. We realize we can never avoid temptation apart from God's help. We don't have the power, but we're inviting him into this thing, and we're saying, God, would you, I, every morning, I, before I get out of bed, I pray, Lord, would you help me obey you today? You know, so it's going to be in his power that we do that. So if those things hinder our prayers, what helps? Let's talk about what helps our prayers. Uh, first thing I chose, there's a bunch of things in Scripture, but here's the first thing I picked was persistence. Jesus says, Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now the problem, is a problem with this verse. It was originally written in Greek, and we don't have all the same tenses in English. Greek has all these extra verb tenses that we don't have. So a more accurate translation would be ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. In other words, persisting in prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus encourages it. Another help in prayer, fasting, Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? The Lord is saying here that there's a power in fasting that breaks people free from oppression and wickedness. And, uh, you know, we can fast and pray for those bound by sin or, or, or held by Satan so they can be set free. Now, one final help in prayer, and, and this, this is something dear to me, praying God's character, praying God's character. We see Abraham do that when he interceded for Sodom. He says to God, Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you. To do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Your prayers are going to break strongholds if you get this. God's about to destroy Sodom. And Abraham says to God, look, God, I know your character. I know you're not going to treat the your followers and those who could care less about you, I know you're not going to treat those two the same way. You're, not, you're going to do right things, not wrong things. And, of course, God answered that prayer. Uh, another example, back in 2001, I was attending the school of ministry. I had a classmate. Uh, his name was Rito. And uh, Rito was 32, and, and we just started the semester. He just got diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, terminal lung cancer, he died seven months later, leaving a young wife. He was 32, and his wife was late 20s or something. And three small girls who, Lodosevich was four, I think. Anyway, some years before, Rito had purchased an insurance policy to pay off the mortgage of their house, and the event something happened, turned out to be a wise thing. And, and, uh, but the insurance company was refusing to pay. You see, uh, when he filled out the application, he checked the box that said non-smoker, and I guess in the course of all the medical interviews and stuff he did, there in the medical records, he said, yeah, when I was age 11, I smoked five cigarettes or something. And so insurance companies saw that and said, we're not going to pay. Well, some of us heard about this, and we just said, Lord, this is unrighteous. You're righteous. You will take care of this widow. And so the Lord showed some steps to be done, and the widow did those things, and she got her check a few weeks later. But the point is that 
when we pray based on the character of God, we're on solid ground. We know God's going to do those things. Now, sometimes we get the idea that there are prayer professionals. You know, there's certain people that got some kind of inside track with God, and if I've got a real big problem, I better have Brian pray or, you know, something. And not a bad idea to have your pastor pray. I think very often God will speak through the person he's placed in authority over us. And, uh, but, but I think we have the idea that there's, there's some people that God answers their prayers, but not mine. And, you know, th- think about Elijah, for example. I mean, he prays and fire comes down. Anybody that's ever experienced marital difficulties, it might have occurred to you, you know, this would be a gifting that, you know, might be of some value. You know, oh, the fire can never have change her sorry attitude. You know, I mean, we just, you know. Now, I'm not saying I ever, well, I, I don't remember exactly now, but maybe I do remember. Anyway, not in the last 24 hours, I don't think. But, um, but anybody here ever pray and have fire come down? I, it's never happened. Never, never, he's just scratching his head, but um, I thought, you know, you come up and teach this, if, you know, that's happened to you, but, but it's, I, it hasn't happened to me. I have trouble lighting the barbecue, so I don't think I've got that gifting. But, you know, we might look at Elijah and say, you know, God answered his prayers because he's somebody special. But no, James tells us that Elijah was a man just like us, an average Joe. So to encourage us in our prayers, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of uh, uh, history on uh, some, some prayers that some very ordinary people prayed, and God did some very extraordinary things to encourage us. A man named Jim Simbola took over as pastor of a failing church in Brooklyn in 1972. The, things were so hopeless that one Sunday he stops five minutes into his sermon, and he says, I can't go on. Something's horribly wrong. You know, Brian and I feel that way every Sunday, right? <laughs> but... but he invited the few people attending to come up forward, and they began to cry out to God. And suddenly this young usher ran up and confessed stealing from the operating plate. You know, it's just one of the things that happens when the Holy Spirit shows up is people begin to be convicted of sin. It's a good, it's a good sign when, when that happens. But anyway, that day, Simbola discovered an astonishing truth, and hold on to this if you can, and that is that God is attracted to weakness. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly... And honestly admit how desperately they need him. He can't, he can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Simbola described the church neighborhood as a place where alcohol, heroin, LSD, cocaine, and prostitution reigned. Simbola cried out to God saying, Lord, I have no idea how to be a successful pastor. People all around us are dying, overdosing from heroin, consumed by materialism. If this gospel is so powerful... And just tears filled his eyes. He couldn't finish his sentence. But then the Lord spoke, saying, If you and your wife will lead my people to pray and call upon my name, you will never lack for something fresh to preach. I will supply all the money that's needed, both for the church and for your family, and you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowds. Silva told the few people in his flock, quote, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer for our church. What happens on Tuesday night will be the gauge by which we will judge success or failure because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. Prayer is the engine that will drive this church. Charles Spurgeon said something similar 100 years before that. He said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. 
In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, recommend that to you, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Symbola writes, we began to think of ourselves as a Holy Ghost emergency room where people in spiritual trauma could be rescued. Symbola says that more than half the people coming on Sunday began to show up at the Tuesday night prayer meeting, and the church began to grow and grow and grow. From, from less than two dozen people in 1972, it grew to over 10,000, and they have never had a building that would contain the crowds. So while things were going so well at the church, there was trouble in Pastor Jim's home. His oldest daughter, Chrissy, who Jim describes as a model child, began to stray around age 16. He writes that some nights they had no idea where Chrissy was. Chrissy had found a boyfriend who Jim described as everything we did not want for our daughters, our, our, our daughter. Um, Many Sunday mornings, Jim says that he would drive to the church and cry for 25 minutes before the service started. In the midst of all this, Jim's wife, Carol, had a hysterectomy. And during her recovery, the devil spoke to her, saying, you have this big choir. She was in charge of the music ministry. You have this big choir, and you're making albums and doing outreaches at Radio City Music Hall and all the rest. Fine. You and your husband can reach the world for Christ but I am going to have your children. I've got the first one, and I'm coming for the other two. Carol said to her husband, we must leave New York City. We can't raise our kids here. Jim began to pray for his daughter with a new intensity, and he, when he received bad news about Chrissy, he would praise the Lord for the good news that was coming. Then one, Christmas came and went without seeing Chrissy, and then one cold day in February at the Tuesday night prayer meeting, somebody passed Jim a note says, we need to stop and pray for Chrissy. And as the church prayed, the sense of determination grew, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off her. She's coming back. That night, Jim told his wife, Carol, that the battle for Chrissy was over. It had been won that night at the prayer meeting. 32 hours later, on a Thursday morning, Chrissy came to their door in tears, saying, Daddy, I've sinned against God and you and Mommy. Please forgive me. Chrissy then asked who had been praying for her on Tuesday night. Because as the church prayed for the deliverance of this young girl, God showed Chrissy she was heading toward the abyss. She was scared to death. She realized how rebellious she'd been. But she also said, at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. The book of Acts, which uh, our pastor's been taking us through, is, of course, the model that is presented for the New Testament church. And in Acts 2.42, we see God say, these are the four elements that define the church, the teaching of the word, communion, prayer, and fellowship. But when Jesus cleansed the temple, he did not say, My house is to be called a house of communion. Neither did he say, my house is to be called a house of fellowship. And surprisingly, he did not even say, my house is to be called a house of the word. As supremely important as the word is, God chooses to define the church in terms of something else, in terms of prayer. Did you know that long before anyone was called a Christian, long before anyone was called a Jew or an Israelite or a Hebrew there was a phrase used to describe the followers of God. We see that in Genesis 4.26. It says there, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. He named him Enosh. 
Then men began to call on the name of the Lord, call on the name of the Lord. The very first people to follow the Lord were, called, were referred to as God-callers, God-callers, prayers. Jesus said the temple there in Jerusalem was his house. And that temple, that house, was destroyed in 70 AD and is yet to be rebuilt. But the Bible tells us that today there's another temple. You, Christian, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. So prayer should define not only the church, it should define you as a Christian. And so if you're a Christian today, God says you are to be a God-caller, one who lives to pray and loves to pray. And in a moment, we're going to do something unusual. I'm going to have you uh, just grab a neighbor or two and just ask them, uh, what would you like to pray for? And pray for that. And uh, we'll do that in just a moment. But, but let's ask for some really big things. Let's ask for some really outlandish things. And then when God does those things, come back next week or whenever and tell that person you prayed with, God has answered that prayer. Before we do that, just a couple more things. Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus says, you know, there's some verses in the Bible that are very difficult to understand. This would be one of them. Um, Matthew eleven twelve. Jesus says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What on earth does that mean? Well, here's one meaning, one application. We have an enemy, an enemy who seeks to kill and destroy. He's a violent enemy. Uh, he comes violently against the kingdom of heaven, by persecuting the people of God. So in response, should we not also violently come against him in the heavenly places? Should we not violently pray against him and his work that holds so many bound? You know, one of the meanings of that word violence is intensity or severity. Should we not oppose Satan with that same violence, that same intensity and severity with which he opposes the plan of, plans of God and oppresses the people of God? Shouldn't our prayers be like battering rams that we use to force open the gates of heaven and grab hold of those things that God wants to give us, but he's waiting, withholding it, waiting for a prayer prayed fervently, or we could say prayed violently. Shouldn't our prayers also be like battering rams busting open the gates of hell and pulling some people out of the flames? I'm not talking about people that have already died, but people are very much alive in the grip of Satan, and slowly but surely he's taking them to the abyss, a place where the Flame, the fire is not quenched and the, and the worm does not die. So today, why don't, let's make today a day when we stop praying pathetically puny prayers and we begin to pray expecting God to do great and mighty things. Amen? I'm going to pray briefly and then just grab a neighbor and Brian, five minutes? Is that, okay, uh, we'll take five minutes and Brian will come up and end us. Let me pray and then just grab, make, keep it simple. Grab a couple people near you. And uh, let's go before the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Lord, who, the lamb who is slain, take away the sin of the world. That's where it all starts, God. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, Lord. And, and if you're here today and you haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ, now would be the perfect time to say, Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, take me to heaven when I die, and help me follow you. That's where it begins. And, and, and the Bible says that we cross from death to life, we cross from hell to heaven when we make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody needs Jesus, no exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts. And so if that's you today, I would beg you, say yes to Jesus today. But for the rest of us, Lord, as we pray to you now, would you just open heaven? Would you just conform our prayers to your will? 
Would you bless us as we come before you now in Jesus' name? Okay, so five minutes.